Hey everybody, it's Pastor Will. Welcome or welcome back to the Brazos Fellowship Podcast. Thank you for listening today. And at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast if you aren't already. But more importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. It is great to see you guys. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online today at home or wherever you are. Thank you so much for making us a part of your day. Also, those of you who are in person here today, thank you so much for being with us. We are so glad to have you. We're going to be diving into this week two of a series we started last week called The Returning King as we're looking at what does the Bible say about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, It has actually a lot to say. Jesus had a lot to say. The Apostle Peter said this in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He calls us, those who, are, who would consider themselves followers of Jesus, if you're a child of God, you're a Christian today, he says, you need to understand you fall into a category of a foreigner, an exile, a stranger, an alien, a temporary resident here on this planet. <clears throat> what he meant by that is there's going to be times, and I think everybody has these times, where you look around and you say, It just doesn't feel right. Like, people shouldn't be treating each other like this. People shouldn't act like that. People shouldn't be doing the stuff they're doing. And he's going, exactly right, because this is not your forever home. That's why you feel like that. And it just should sort of make sense and that there is a longing in you, a desire to want to arrive at your eternal destination. There's a longing to be in your forever home. And Jesus spoke specifically and directly to this desire for that eternal destination in us when he spoke on the night before his crucifixion, when he's talking to his disciples. But these promises are for us today, too. In John chapter 14, I want us to take a look at verse 3 where he says this. He says, I am, let's say it together, I am coming again to welcome you into my own home so that you may be where I am. Jesus is saying, the reason you feel like that It's going to be fulfilled by a a coming, a second coming of mine where I'm going to come get you and I'm going to bring you to my home that I have created for you and we're going to be together forever. Now, this is an amazing fulfillment of that desire God put in, I believe, in every person, but sometimes we numb it, we ignore it, we move away from it long enough that we forget about it. And some of you can't forget about it. You feel it all the time. So I want to talk to you about the second coming of Jesus today, that fulfillment of this longing and desire and promise and prophecy that Jesus gave us. So to start that, I want to start by giving you six signs that preceded Jesus' second coming. These are six biblical markers that were given by Jesus through the New Testament that are going to happen prior to his return but it's important for you to know about them. So I'm going to kind of hit them fairly briefly. I'm going to give you verses that you can go more in depth and read about them. They'll be on the outline, and also, um, of course, you can always watch this video online. You can rewind rewind it and, and watch where those scriptures are and look them up for yourself. So let's walk through these six signposts for the return of Jesus. Here's the first one. The preaching of the gospel to all nations. That this gospel, this good news of Jesus, Jesus said, would be presented to all people groups on planet earth. Everywhere. This is a part of why missions is such a big deal. Not only here, but at most 
every church that would say, yes, we're a New Testament evangelical church. We want to help continue to see this people reached all over the world. And the interesting thing is, not always, but sometimes, missionaries will come to unreached people groups. People groups in the world, and this may shock you, where they still have not translated the Bible into their language, and there are still those groups out there, Um, they'll arrive to share the gospel with them, and to their amazement, sometimes they'll run into people who already are believers in Jesus. How did that happen? How did they know? How did they even find out about Jesus? We don't know. But there's amazing how God is already at work in people's hearts. Or they feel like, sometimes they'll say, this is something that God was preparing us for. This was a promise God told us that somebody was going to come and tell us the truth about himself. And it's, it's amazing how God wants this to happen. He is helping us to make this happen. But these are the promises and the, the calling to do that. So here's the second signpost, is that the great tribulation. Jesus says that towards the end of the time before he returns, he says that, that, um, that wars and rumors of wars will happen around the world, that nation will rise against nation, that there will be famine, that there will be earthquakes, there'll be these natural disasters happen all over. And he says, and when you see these, know that the end is near, okay? And, of course, a lot of people would argue that a lot of this stuff's happening right now. Um, Number three, he says this, false prophets working signs and wonders. And false prophets, how do we know if someone's a false prophet? Someone who comes and says, I'm a prophet of God, but they're false. First of all, you look at what are they prophesying? What are they saying is going to happen? Are they revising their prophecy? If they do, they're not from God, okay? That's how it works. And also, if they're a prophet from God, are they taking the full counsel of God's word? Are they teaching what God taught on a topic, or are they doing what's called sometimes isogesis? They take one verse out of context and try to twist it around and make it say something it really doesn't say. Another way we can look at a false prophet is, are they elevating themselves or Jesus? Are they glorifying themselves or Jesus? Also, those who are following this prophet, um, how do they treat other, other Christians? Are they treating other Christians lovingly the way Jesus taught us to, teach, uh, to treat other Christians in John 13, 34, and 35? Or are they hateful? Are they divisive? Are they mean? Are they ugly? Are they um, you know, condemning? How, how do they treat? He says, this is how you know, but these false prophets may very well have superhuman abilities to do things that will wow people and large numbers will follow. Here's the next one. Number four, signs in the heavens. Jesus says, and and here he quotes a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 13 verse 10 and following, which was 750 years before he was born, this prophecy was given, but he says, and this is what will happen. Before I come, the sun and the moon will go dark and the stars will fall from the sky before I come back. No one's going to miss this. And he talks about this, Mark and Matthew. And and number four, he says this. He says, the appearance of the man of lawlessness, or the Antichrist, this is the evil man sometimes referred to, that it is Satan's representative here on earth. And this man will be incredibly powerful, influential, and rise to power. 
And here's how you will know. He says that he will take over all that is worshipped, God included. He will want all to worship him. He will want to be everyone's God. Make no mistake about it. He will make it where you must worship me. And he very well, too, is talked about as having superhuman abilities. I don't know what those abilities would be, but he says, do not be deceived when the man of lawlessness shows up, because this is very well what could happen. He says, and even the elect could be led astray, even if, even possibly, if that could even happen, he says, that, that you've got to be careful. Don't be misled. Don't be misled uh, astray here. Number six tells us this. The salvation of all Israel. Now, there is some debate in Romans 12, 25, and 26 when the Apostle Paul is writing about this. What exactly does he mean by all of Israel? Is it the remnant? God always seemed to operate with his people throughout the Old Testament as a remnant. It's those people that are left that are still worshiping the true God and didn't bow down to all the idols of the neighboring nations. And this seems to be the case. Some argue, well, no, we're the new Jerusalem, the new Israel in Christ. Maybe it's that. But be that as it may, and the Apostle Paul talks about my former heritage was I was Jewish before I became Christian, and now I was converted. And I see so many others are also being converted, and that God's promise to his people to come to faith in him, who knows how many that will be, he says, must be fulfilled. Now, these are the six signposts in Scripture that say they must happen before the return of Jesus. Now, you might be asking, well, Will, last week, didn't you say the return of Jesus would be uh, unexpected, uncertain? We don't know. It could be at any time. Yes, that's true. <clears throat> so, here's the question. How can, how can Jesus return at any time if these are unfulfilled? Any one of these six or a combination thereof? Great question. I want to point you to a resource that I think could be very helpful to you. It's Dr. Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It's a great book. Uh, I'm going to point you all the way back to the back of the book, chapter 54. I read it this week. It's got a great explanation of how can at least five of the six signposts that I just told you be fulfilled and Jesus be able to come back at any time. How can those be congruent? And he says that and he shows you how each one of those could either already have been fulfilled or they are being fulfilled right now. But he, he will be honest enough to say, but we just don't know. And I think God did that on purpose. He wants us not to know. He says no one will know the day or the hour, right? No one will know. Five out of the six we know that maybe have been or are being fulfilled right now, except for one. And the one would be number four, the signs of the heavens. But he argues the sun going dark and the stars falling from the sky could literally happen in a moment. It could happen just moments before Jesus returns. He says, so that one could happen at any time. So literally, still, yet, the argument can be made strong that he can return at any time. The New Testament book of Jude, chapter 1, verse 6. By the way, Jude was a half-brother of Jesus. He, Jude, and James were half-brothers of Jesus. They grew up in the house together, right? Chapter 1, verse 6, he calls it the great day of his return. The great day. So let's talk about the great day of Jesus' return. What will happen that day? What will it be like? How will you know, okay, this is the day. Today's the great day. It's the big day. It's, it's the day of his return. There is no question about it. 
right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, the Apostle Paul writes specifically, <clears throat> he wants to make sure that the brothers and sisters in Christ that he's writing to, and all of us, are clear about what that day will look like and what are the events that will transpire within that day. So let's read this together. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Now, he's going to use this euphemism or the symbol of death by talking about it in terms of sleep. He'll do it three times in this passage, just so you are aware. And he really, I believe, gets this from Jesus himself. You remember when Jairus came to Jesus and said, hey, would you come to my house and heal my little girl? She's sick. And on the way, one of his servants greets them and says, don't bother the master. Your, your little baby is dead. Your girl is not alive. And, and Jesus looks to his father and says, don't worry. She's just asleep. He's just asleep. And when, she, when they get to the house, they're laughing at him. She's not asleep. She's dead. And he goes in and he raises her up. He says, see, she was asleep. I told you she was asleep, right? She's asleep. And it was a way of Jesus talking about the time between our death here and the, his second coming. That there's this time of sleep. We're not here anymore, but we're still very much alive. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. We talked about last week that the second coming of Jesus is the anchor of our hope. It is our living hope. It is our joy to know Jesus is coming back. And that when we think about our loved ones who have passed away before we do, we don't grieve like mankind who has no hope. We know that if they knew Christ, they are more alive right now than we are. They are with him. And there's no way they would want to come back here. <laughs> they are so thrilled to be in the presence of God. He goes on to say this, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. There again, he's talking about those who have passed away. And he's saying, because God raised Jesus from the dead, and, and often Paul will do this. This is the hinge point of our faith. That because we know he did that, that it is easy to believe that he could raise any human being from the dead. That of course he can do that. And he says, um, that we tell you that we are still alive. And those who are left until the, second, until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Okay, he's telling us there that, that we're not going to precede them, that they are going to go to the Lord ahead of us. Let's take a look at the next part of the verse here. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. Some translations say a loud shout, right? with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. He goes on to say, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Like the Apostle Paul is saying, this is the most encouraging thing you could tell another Christian. He's coming, and he's going to set all things right, and he's going to make all things new, and it's going to feel right for the first time forever. You'll feel like, I'm finally home. Yes, 
It's right. It's just. It's beautiful. It's just the way God intended. This was his heart fully, explosively expressed in everything. And that the righteousness of God, we're told in Zephaniah, will cover the earth like the waters cover the ocean. It will be everywhere. You will see God in his beauty. Beautiful, beautiful. I want to give you these five events of Christ's return that are represented in this passage in 1 Thessalonians. Let's give you these five events that are there in that passage that we can look back at and hold on as anchors. Here's the first one of the five uh, anchor points is that Christ's return will be visibly with a loud command. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, last week you probably remember this, when the angels showed up right outside of Jerusalem and they said, men of Galilee, why are you looking up into the sky? Jesus had just ascended into heaven, right? And he says, he will return just as you saw him, visibly, bodily. But in addition to that, he will return with a loud command. And it's not like you and I yelling at the top of our voice. Scripture gives us, and I love these little snapshots that the Bible gives us of what that might be like when God shouts over the earth. We're told in Revelation 1.15, his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. Now, I remember the first time that Leslie and I went to California and took our girls I remember us going to the beach, and that day, the surf was crazy huge. And, you know, I don't go to the surf or to the beach every day in California. So I don't, maybe it's like that all the time. But it literally, the, these waves were crashing right onto the beach, and they literally were like eight feet tall, maybe bigger than that. And I had never seen waves like that. And to crash right in front of you, it hit the ground so hard, it would shake the earth, and I could feel the reverberation through my heart. I'm like, oh, girls, we're not getting in the ocean. All right, like, that'll kill you. Like, it, was, it came with such veracity, such force. And can you imagine these big, giant tidal waves that these guys like Laird Hamilton ride? They're 100, you know, 80 to 100 feet tall. Could you imagine that crashing? Could you imagine one 1,000 feet tall, a million feet tall? Can you imagine the reverberation? He's trying to figure out, how do I say this? When he speaks, the whole earth, everything shakes. Such mighty power. And in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 30, he talks about the Lord's voice. He says, the Lord will roar from on high. He will thunder from his holy dwelling. Whew. God's voice will not be ignored. Everybody will hear that. And here's the next thing he tells us. There will be an unmistakable cry from an archangel. Now we're told archangels are angels that have been given a specific and unique task. They are commanding officers, if you will, over the Lord's army. The only one named in Scripture is Michael, the archangel. But we're told that he is one of many. Now, let me just clarify for you real quick. Some of you might be still thinking about, when you think of an angel, you think of a, like a little cherub with a little diaper and a like, bow and arrow like that. No! Imagine Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime, but like 12 to 15 feet tall with superhuman strength and can fly, okay? Scary. And, he's, and they're so good. They're so righteous. 
They reflect the glory of God so much that when people see them, they think they're going to die or they try to worship them. The Apostle John, when he's writing the book of Revelation, you see this where he sees the angels sharing with him Revelation. He tries to worship the angel, and the angel says, no, you don't. I am not worthy of your worship. Only he, only Jesus is worthy. Worship him only, not me. They're so beautiful. They reflect the glory of God. And we're told when we see him, when we are with him, we will be above the angels. Can you even imagine that? There will be a trumpet fanfare like has never been heard in the history of the world. Daniel chapter 7 verse 10, he gets a little glimpse of this moment too in his prophecy. And he says, the best I can estimate, it's 10,000 times 10,000 angels, which, by the way, is about 100 million. He goes, it's somewhere north of 100 million of these angels that are just pouring into our atmosphere. There's so many of them, and they're, the, the trumpet blast is so beautiful, and it's so loud, and no one misses it. It's everywhere. It's awesome. And we're told in Number four is that the believers in Christ who are dead will rise from their graves. Now, don't think about, you know, Michael Jackson's thriller video. Like, not that kind of rise from the grave. I'm talking about, like, when Jesus came forth from the tomb and nobody could believe he had been crucified. He had a beautiful, glorified body that could move through walls and he could instantly be wherever he wanted. And he was untouchable by this world and he's showing you here's body 2.0 you get one of these <laughs> it's going to be beautiful it's going to be awesome and he reminds us in john 5 this is jesus talking i assure you that the time is coming indeed it is here now when the dead will hear my voice the voice of the son of god he will go on to say don't be surprised indeed the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of god's son and they will rise again some to blessing and glory and some to judgment we'll talk about that in just a minute but his voice just like we saw just a little glimpse with lazarus he calls forth lazarus his voice roared into the deeps of the depths of death and hell and called forth Lazarus back to this earth. And it's beautiful. And we're told, number five, here's the last one. Believers who are alive will be caught up in the clouds to meet Christ. And with all of those loved ones who have gone before you will be there too with all of the angels. It's going to be just a massive reunion party. Huge party. Huge. Everybody's going to be there that has said yes to him, invited him in. To their hearts. Now, just in case you're wondering, some people say, no, 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 Jesus is going to come back. It's going to be shh, real quiet. Just this little rapture that, you know, nobody's going to really know, right? Let me just show you what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 27. He says, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, like a crack of lightning that goes from the east to the west, and the sky opens up, and the heavens are exposed, and here comes Jesus and all of his angels and all of the believers who have gone before us. They're all coming. I'm talking about Moses, Elijah, 
Esther, Ruth, all of them. Noah, they're all going to be there. You get to meet them all. Unbelievable. And some will be blessed and some will be cursed. Let's talk about that because Jesus said the very next thing that will happen is what he called the great judgment. The great judgment. He talks about this many places in scripture. Matthew chapter 25, I want to point you to a a parable, but where Jesus is very much describing what that moment will look like and I encourage you to go back and read the whole chapter 25 of Matthew. He talks, this whole chapter is parable, parable, parable of how to prepare yourself for his second coming. He's just saying, here's how you do it. We talked a little bit about last week. I don't have time to go into all of it, but here's what he says. He says, and when the Son of Man comes in his glory, remember we define glory on Easter Sunday, it is the visible manifestation of God's attributes and his character. All of it, all of God's attributes and character will be seen in Jesus when he comes back. Very different than his first coming, right? He comes in all of his glory and all the angels with him. All of them, not some of them, all of them. And let me just say, they're likely to way outnumber us. There's far, far more than them probably than there are of us. He will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations, everybody will be gathered before him. And then he tells us, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And I want to shift your attention from here to Revelation chapter 20. Jesus' parable, now we're going to look at the Apostle John, where he's talking about the exact same event. You think about it like camera one and camera two. They're both watching the same thing, but he's going to share with us some other information that I think is really key and helpful right here. Here in Revelation chapter 20, starting with verse 11, John tells us, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. This is Jesus. Clear, clear. All throughout this whole chapter, it is Jesus. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. He says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. All the nations were there. Books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. Now, just to be clear, the first books that were open are the record of everything that you have ever done, said, or thought. Everything. Whether you're a Christian or not, and it will all be exposed, and will all be shared. Every person, all of it, laid open. The book of life is a record of those names who have invited Christ, who have recognized that Jesus is my only hope, and I have to have his forgiveness to be made right with God. Jesus, forgive me. I invite you into my life to be my forgiver of sin and the Lord and leader of my life. And I'm going to not... You know, none of us can live a perfect life, but we're going to step forward in obedience of following him as Lord. That is the names written in the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. He goes on to say, the sea um, gave up the dead that were in it, and death, the, the idea, the concept of no more life, death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. So you understand there's a sense in which your own personal righteousness and however failing you were at it 
must be laid open and bare before all right there in that moment. And he goes on to say, well, pardon me, let me stop right there. Because he says, what you have done, going back to the parable in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about it this way. He says to those who were on his right, the sheep, he says, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I didn't have proper clothing, you clothed me. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. When I was sick, you helped take care of me. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. And they said, Lord, when? When did we do this? When, when did we even have an opportunity to do this for you? And he says, whenever you've done it unto the least of these, you did it for me. I take it very personal how you treat people in need around you. And then he turns to the goats and he says just the opposite. I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything. I was hungry, you didn't pay me any attention. I was homeless, you wouldn't invite me in. You didn't give me a second look. I needed clothing, I was in need. You didn't help. I was sick, you didn't even try. I was in prison, you ignored me and tried to act like I didn't exist. Away with you forever. Going back to, to Genesis chapter 20, he says this, then death and Hades, Hades is another word for hell, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. The second death is the final spiritual death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The second eternal spiritual death. Now the question that has been raised over and over for hundreds, maybe thousands of years, is how could a loving God send people to hell? It's a great question. Let me give you an answer. God loves us too much to force anyone into his presence for all eternity. Ladies in the room, think about this. Have you ever had a guy pursue you that you really wish did not pursue you? Like, is there any woman in here that would say, I had a guy one time that was just kind of wouldn't leave me alone, and I wish he would have, right? Anybody here? Like, I understand you want to lift your hand because he might be sitting next to you. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Awkward, right? What if that guy, what if that guy said, look, I don't care what you say, I'm going to make you love me for all eternity. Let me ask you, is that love yes or no? No. Coercion at best, most of us would probably say abuse, right? Horrible. God says, I love you too much and to treat you like that. If you have lived a life away from God, rejecting God, walking away from him over and over and over, that equates into an eternity of being separated from God. This is what you have chosen. God is only honoring the choice and the decision that you have made. Think about it like a doctor standing over a, a, a body on an ER table. Either they have a pulse or they don't. They're either dead or alive. Yes, the doctor has to call it at some point. But sheep and goats are either alive or they're dead. This is what Jesus is doing at the great white throne of judgment. He's basically just saying, I'm honoring the decision you already made. Either you're going to justify your own deeds or you're going to allow Jesus to do it for you. 
But you decide. But just know your eternity is attached to that decision. The stakes could not be higher. And you need to understand that when you reject God, you're rejecting everything that goes with God. That God is good, righteous, just. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is kind. We are under this grace of God. Jesus talked about that the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous on this earth. Like he is still, you are under his good graces right now, whether you realize it or not. He, you are in a good place right now, but it's about to all be taken away. And when that happens, the only thing is left is this quarantine of evil. All the good stuff is gone with God, and you are left only with what is evil forever. Jesus is trying to warn us. He's saying the stakes could not be higher. You need to consider this. This is why he asked the question in Matthew 16, verse 26. Jesus asked, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? If you had everything this world could offer in spades, what does it matter if you lose your soul? And I love this haunting question right here. Is anything worth more than your soul? Is anything. You need to think about that question. Let it haunt you if you have rejected Jesus. Is anything worth more than that? It is your eternity that hangs in the balance. He says, For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. And how do we prepare? What's the first step in preparing for the second coming of Jesus Christ? If you're kind of in that square one spot and just say, wow, this is eye-opening and I want to be prepared, what's the first step? The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Rome, chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, he lays out for us, what does that first step look like? Whoever you are, here's where it begins. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved on that last day, on the second coming of Jesus Christ. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. This is a legal term saying that you are set forth as righteous, not because of anything that you did, but because of what he did on your behalf. He imputes this righteousness upon us. It's his but now God treats us as if we are him, Jesus, his position, his righteousness. It's a gift, a free gift that he offers to us, justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess and you profess faith and are saved. This is how a person gets saved, Paul says. You profess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And he conquered death and hell so that we could have forgiveness. But we confess, and the confession is not mere lip service. This is a deep down commitment of saying, I may not be perfect, but I'm going to live the rest of my days, the rest of my eternity, as Jesus as my Lord. I'm going to let him lead my life because I've lived long enough to know I'm going to make a wreck of it if I keep doing this to myself. And what's beautiful here is that he shows us that our gratitude now flows not from 
uh, our, our, you know, our response to God flows not from a fear of the wrath that may be poured out on us on the day of judgment in his second coming, but it, we, we respond to God and we worship him and we, we uh, serve him out of gratitude for his grace that he's going to show and he's going to lavish on us when he saves us and he rescues us on the day of his great judgment. And all those things are read about you and I, and it's going to be really embarrassing, and Jesus is going to say, I got this one. I got her. I've got him. They're mine. And everything I died for was for them. And you're his. But he says, you don't have to wait till heaven to start living like I'm your, you're his. You can start that right now. You can start that right now. As a matter of fact, I encourage you, start to live your life every day, getting up saying, God, today, shine your glory through me. Show me the people who are in need around me, people who are hungry and thirsty, who are in need, that I can help meet their needs, that I can invite them in, that I can help them, that are sick, that are hurting, that are lonely. Show me, God, how I can meet that need, how I can bless them. Because he longs for the day that he can see you and say to your face what is said in Matthew 25, verse 34. Then the king, the king, I love this. This is Jesus' title. He's the king. The king of kings and the Lord of lords will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you. See, the king has a kingdom, right? And you're invited. You're one of his children. You're one of his citizens. Kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. It is a good place. It is beautiful, and it is made for us. And next week, we're going to talk all about finally home, heaven. What that's going to look like, the little glimpses and beautiful pictures and vignettes we have in Scripture of what that might be like. We're going to talk about that next week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Brazos Valley, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our fabulous children's and student environments, visit us at brazosfellowship.com. That's brazosfellowship.com.